Good morning, CCF. My name is Ian Woodall. I'm one of the interns this summer at CCF. My wife, Becca, and I have attended CCF for the past few years. We're members here. And for all of those reasons, I'm excited to open God's word with you today and preach from Acts 12. So we'll be in Acts 12. Last week, Ed Vanderbush closed out our summer series on the Psalms. And next week, we're going to be starting a new series. But for this morning, we're going to look at a passage that you're probably all familiar with, especially if you grew up in church and went through Sunday school, you've probably heard this. But it's from the book of Acts, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I hope this morning it's an encouragement to all of us. But before we start with Acts 12, I want to talk for a second about rivalries. And we all love a good rivalry, especially when it's between two people or things that are fairly equal. In the area of sports, we have Ohio State versus Michigan. That's really big around here. In the area of superheroes, you have Spider-Man versus Green Goblin. And then in the technology world, you have iPhones versus every other phone. (laughs) It doesn't even matter which one. It's just iPhone versus them all. And then in the book of Acts and in the world today, we have Jesus Christ and his church and the spread of the gospel versus every kind of opposition that sets itself up against him. And unlike the previous examples we looked at, this rivalry, or this verses, is not between two things that are equal in power, struggling against each other. But Christ is on the throne, regardless of what we see with our eyes, and nothing can stop his plans. And in the book of Acts, as I said, we see this rivalry on full display, as Christ moves his church forward, no matter what tries to stop it. So in the book of Acts, um, it is written by Luke, and as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, so this is kind of a part two to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospels focus on the life and ministry of Christ, how he died on the cross for us and rose again, and then the book of Acts picks up after Jesus has risen from the dead, and it shows the spread of the Gospel after Christ goes to heaven. So in Acts 1, we see Jesus Christ appear to the disciples, and he tells them, that he's going to leave. He's going to go to heaven and he'll send his Holy Spirit to them and tells them that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts follows this spread of the gospel. But throughout the book of Acts, we see this theme of persecution. As I've mentioned, it's common throughout. As the gospel spreads, opposition arises. We see this as religious leaders first oppose the church. Then there's all kinds of internal and external trials. And then you have political leaders set themselves up against Christ and his church. But as we see, no matter what barrier arises to the gospel, it breaks through all of those. We see Christ moving the gospel forward through the power of the Holy Spirit. Believers are empowered to work miracles that verify that this message that they're proclaiming is truly from God. And God works in these mighty ways, and a common response throughout the book of Acts is amazement. People see the works of God and respond with amazement. So we first see this at Pentecost. That's when the disciples and the apostles have the Holy Spirit come on them, and they preach the gospel in languages they've never learned before. And this is clearly showing a work of God, and the people who hear it, it says, are amazed and astonished. When Peter and John then heal a beggar in the name of Jesus later on, It says that the people were utterly astounded. The same response happens when Peter and John boldly preach the gospel to the religious leaders. They're astonished. 
And one of my favorites is when you see uh, Simon, who was a magician in the book of Acts. He was someone who practiced magic, not through God's work, but through some other sort. And, and he amazes the people with this magic. But then you see Philip bring the gospel to the area. And through the gospel, through people being filled with the Holy Spirit, this magician who formerly used to amaze people, it says that he was amazed as he saw these things. And this amazement throughout the gospel, or throughout the book of Acts, isn't just reserved for unbelievers, but we also see believers responding this way. In Acts 10, the Gentiles received the gospel. The gospel goes past Jerusalem and now is reaching people who were not a part of the Jewish nation. And these people hear the gospel, and they believe, and the Holy Spirit fills them. And these Jewish believers see this happen, and they respond with amazement. So throughout Acts, we have persecution, and we have amazement at the work of God as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. More people put their faith in Jesus Christ, and Luke shows us that over and over again. As the gospel spreads, people respond. We see that thousands put their faith in Christ and become a part of Christ's church. And we read these summary statements after most of these events, how the gospel spreads. Or it says the word of the Lord increased and multiplied because it talks about the gospel spreading. So with all of that said, please look with me at Acts 12. Our title for today's sermon is A Tale of Two Kings. And one of the interns this week gave me a hard time because recently we've been on this Tale of Two Cities kick. It's just a title that seems to work well with any sermon, with any section of scripture. But I think you'll see that it's fitting here as well. We again see opposition to Christ and his church. So in Acts 12, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be looking at persecution from the king, that's point one, deliverance from the Lord and the king on his throne. So persecution from the king, deliverance from the Lord and the king on his throne. So first, let's look at persecution from the king. Please read with me from Acts 12, 1 through 5. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So in these verses, we see the setting and the background for what is going to follow. We see this king who persecuted the church and set himself up against Christ, and his name is King Herod. And now, even if you're not used to studying the Bible, the name Herod probably rings a bell. There's a few different Herods throughout the New Testament. The one we have here is Herod Agrippa I. You're probably familiar with his grandfather, Herod the Great. He was the Herod who slaughtered the children and babies to try to kill Jesus at the start of Matthew. Then for our Herod here, his uncle was Herod Antipas. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. It's a great family, right? And it's from this family of rulers who are opposed to the Lord that we see our king, Herod Agrippa, here. And from these few verses alone, we can see that this is a king who's opposed to the church and that much of his opposition, the reason for it, 
stems from his desire to please people. We read that he did these things to please the Jews. He wanted glory and praise. We read that he killed James, the brother of John. This James was one of the apostles. He was one of the original 12 disciples who walked with Jesus. He was one of the leaders of the early church. And when this pleased the Jews for him to kill James, we see that he then arrested Peter also. A few chapters before this, we saw Saul, who you know as Paul, who was someone who also was opposed to the spread of the church. He tried to stop the spread of the gospel by arresting every Christian that he could. But here we have Herod, the king, who tries to stop the gospel by going after the leaders of the church. We read that Herod arrested Peter during the days of unleavened bread. Now this is a Jewish holiday that begins with the Passover and then lasts seven days. So out of respect for this holiday, there were no executions during this time. But Peter is arrested, and we see that the clock is ticking. They're waiting for the festival to end so that he can be brought out to the people. And I want to pause for just a moment. Here we see that we have a king who's opposed to Christ and his people. And throughout the book of Acts, already we've seen persecution to the church. At first, it, it starts as people being arrested and beaten. Religious leaders drag the disciples and others into jail. But the persecution intensifies. In Acts 7, we have the first martyr, Stephen. Stephen was someone who was uh, a, a believer who was strong and who was a deacon in the church. And he's brought out and he's stoned by this mob of Jews. So we have his death. There's no fair trial. But here we have James, one of the 12 apostles who's murdered. This is one of the leaders of the church. And Peter we have arrested and on his way to sharing the same fate. So here the believers aren't just being made fun of anymore. They're not losing their religious liberties. They're being killed. And here it's some of the leaders of the church who are being killed. And how does the church respond to this? Well, if you look with me at verse 5, it says they pray. Earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. They pray. And prayer is always the right response to persecution. So this verse shows how the Christians responded, and this is also how they responded back in Acts 4. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested for teaching about Jesus. They were dragged before the Jewish leaders and they said this, they said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They were threatened and released, and all the Christians gathered together with Peter. And it says they lifted their voices as one to the Lord. And how did they address the Lord? How did they pray to him? Well, it says they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth. They acknowledged that the Lord is the creator. They show that he's in control. And they pray from Acts 2, or excuse me, from Psalm 2. They say, Lord, the nations have always raged against the Lord and against his anointed. That was true back in the Psalms. That was true when the world persecuted and murdered Christ. And this is true today. They showed that what we're suffering is not new. The nations have always raged against the Lord and against his anointed. It's always been this way. But they also acknowledge that the events of Christ's death happened according to God's sovereign plan. They pray for boldness, and the Lord grants them this prayer. 
So we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes. We see that from that passage of Acts. We see that from our chapter and throughout the rest of Scripture. We shouldn't be surprised. The nations have always raged against the Lord and against his anointed. We follow a Savior who didn't do anything wrong but was murdered. He suffered. And our Savior commanded us to follow him. So we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes. But like the church here, we know that God is in control. We know that nothing happens that catches him off guard. Nothing happens that's outside of his plan. He's sovereign, and he sees us, and he answers our prayers. So we pray. In church family, how will we respond when persecution comes? We don't experience it a lot right now. But how would we and how will we respond when persecution comes? How will we respond when we experience injustice because of our allegiance to Jesus? Will we run to Facebook to try to gather up the support and recognition, make a group and push back on this? Or will our first response be to pray? And as I thought about this this week, I think that one of the reasons that we don't pray, whether it's for persecution or other areas of life, is because we want to be in control. We want to do something. We want to contribute somehow but we're helpless and we're needy. And persecution just makes that especially clear. But God is not limited. So a powerful king kept Peter in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God for him by the church. And this brings us to the next section of our passage, deliverance from the Lord. Read with me Acts, 6, Acts 12, 6 through 11. God's word says this. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. As I mentioned earlier, Peter was arrested during the days of unleavened bread. It seemed that Herod's intention was that after this time ended, he would execute Peter. If you look with me at verse 6, as we just read, it said, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. So here we have Peter as the clock has run out. This is the day before his trial. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. And I think that this reflects Peter's trust in the Lord. I'm a student right now, and when finals come around, it's pretty hard to get a good night's sleep right before those tests. I'm anxious. But here we have Peter sleeping soundly right before his trial. And I want to pause here for a moment and say that this is not Peter's miraculous escape. If you're using an NIV this morning, that's, I believe, the heading of it. 
And I know what they're getting at by saying that, but escape seems to imply that you contribute in some way. But that's not what's happening here. Peter isn't escaping. He's being delivered. He's being rescued. The Lord is delivering Peter. And when I was growing up, uh, my parents would drive us home after church and would look at us and say, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And if today, for whatever reason, the tables turn and parents, your kids turn to you and say, what did you learn about in big church today? Don't tell them you learned about Peter's miraculous escape. This is all about the Lord delivering Peter. The risen Lord Jesus is delivering a sleepy Peter. Look at the text with me to Peter's lack of contribution to this whole rescue. In verse 7, it says that the angel of the Lord is right next to him and that his cell fills with light and yet he continues to sleep. The angel has to strike him in the side to wake him up. The chains just fall off his hands. He doesn't pick the lock. The angel has to tell him to dress himself and to put on his shoes. The angel tells him to wrap himself in a cloak and follow, and he's told to do something and then does it. He's an obedient follower in this whole situation. And a lot of the commands here, they almost feel unnecessary, right? You would think if you're being rescued, you would jump up, throw your clothes on, or maybe you wouldn't even worry about that, and you would just bolt past the angel to get out of the jail. But that's not what we see here, and the reason for it is in verse 9. Peter doesn't even know that what's happening is real. He thinks he's seeing a vision right now. He's, he's kind of sleepwalking. Peter doesn't grab his clothes and run. He's half asleep. And then when the angel leaves him, it's then that Peter comes to his senses and says, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And then after this whole scene, as the Lord delivers Peter from prison, then we see that Peter goes and shares what the Lord has done to the other believers who are praying for him. And this whole scene coming up is filled with irony and humor. It's almost lighthearted. Look with me at verses 12 to 17. It says this, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So here we have Peter knocking at the door of the gate. And Rhoda, little Rhoda, the servant girl, is so excited when she hears Peter's voice that she leaves him outside. And the Lord delivered Peter, but he's still wanted. <laughs> he's still in danger, and she just leaves him outside the gate. Uh, if you heard this as a kid in Sunday school, you probably remember little Rhoda. But Peter's not delivered yet, and ironically, the group of Christians that are praying for Peter right now don't believe, Rhoda, that Peter was delivered. So from verse 5, as we read, we know that the church was praying for Peter, but it doesn't seem like they expected the Lord to answer their prayers in this miraculous of a way. So they dismissed Rhoda. They said that it was his ghost. But then you have Peter 
still knocking at the door. And they opened it, and they saw him, and they were amazed. And this reminds me of Ephesians 3.20. It's there that Paul praises the Lord and refers to the Lord as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. Even more than we could ask or think. And that's exactly what's happening here. That's such a great example of this truth. And here we see again that they're amazed. As I mentioned earlier, this is a common response throughout the book of Acts to the work of God. The Christians saw Peter, and they heard how the Lord had delivered him, and they were amazed. And for us, as we read Acts, as we read how the Lord delivered Peter here, and as we see how the Lord works today to rescue sinners and change their lives through the gospel, we see the gospel move forward in ordinary and miraculous ways, and our response to all of those things should be amazement as well. So Peter encourages the Christians here with what the Lord has done. But before he leaves, he tells them to share this news with James and the brothers. Now, the James that we see here isn't talking about the James who was killed at the start of this passage. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is the James who, after seeing Jesus Christ, his brother, die, be buried, and rise from the grave, believes that this Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And it's this James that then goes and writes the book of James in the New Testament. So he shares these things with James. But if you look with me at verses 18 and 19, we see the response of Herod. It says this, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Here we read Herod's response. And after a failed search, he executes the guards. And from this, I think we again see what Herod's intentions were for Peter. Many commentators noted that Herod was likely following a common Roman practice of the day, where if you're a guard and you accidentally lose sight of your prisoner, whatever punishment was going to the prisoner, you then received. And if that's the case, then here we again see what Herod's intention was for Peter. And after reading all of these things, isn't this an encouragement to us? Even if it's something you heard when you were younger, if you're hearing it for the first time, isn't this an encouragement? We have Herod, a prideful king, set himself up against the gospel, and yet he can't keep Peter in prison. The Lord delivers Peter. The Lord works through all of this. The Lord's hand is throughout this whole story so far. Herod couldn't stop God. And while we're on that, Peter and the other Christians here, they're not portrayed negatively, but they certainly aren't the heroes of the story. Um, this is all about God getting the glory and working through this. We have a prideful king. We have Peter who's asleep, and he's being delivered, and yet he's still tired and sleepwalking. We have Rhoda who leaves Peter at the gate. We have the Christians who are praying, yet are shocked when the Lord delivers Peter. And through all of this, God gets the glory. Now, for the longest time, I thought that verse 19 here was the end of this section. When I was growing up in Sunday school, that's certainly where the flanograph ended. I remember little Rhoda, all of those things. Then we cut it off at verse 19. And that makes sense in some ways because Peter's section kind of ends here. But I think James wants us to read all of chapter 12 as a whole. 
And I say that because if you look with me at the end of Acts 11, you can even just look at the last verse. Uh, In Acts 11, the last verse, we see that Barnabas and Saul are the focus. They're sent on this mission where they're going to bring relief to churches who are struggling from a famine. So the chapter before is, is then focusing on Paul and Barnabas. And then if you look with me at the end of Acts 12, in the last verse and in the chapter that follows, we see again the focus be on Barnabas and Saul. They returned from their mission. They brought relief to the church. And for the rest of the book of Acts, Luke focuses on Paul and his ministry of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the Gentiles. So I think those are our bookends, and I think we should read everything in the middle here as being connected. And I also say that because of how our chapter started. It starts with a prideful king who wants praise and glory and sets himself up against Christ and his church. And with those things said, please read with me now Acts 20, Acts 12, 20 through 24. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal clothes. He took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people watching were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So I've had this Bible of mine for a long time, and I have this little surprised face that I drew in one time when I was younger next to this. And I remember reading this and thinking, that's crazy. But I didn't really know how it fit in with the rest of the chapter, but crazy. But here I want to argue, this isn't just a story that Luke decided to throw in randomly into the, gospel, into the book of Acts. But it's here for a reason. And that brings us to this last point, the king on his throne. So if you're taking notes, this is the king on his throne. So from what we see here, uh, we have... King Herod, so you may think that the king on his throne refers to Herod, Uh, but he is indeed a king, and he sits on a throne, but he isn't the king. And in this section, we see that that king is the risen Lord Jesus, and he is the one who reigns. In these verses, we see judgment on Herod. We also see the real king, and we see the spread of the gospel. So this story isn't random here. It's not disconnected or thrown in randomly. But Acts 12 began with Herod's persecution, and then it focused on Peter, and now we come back to this prideful king. From verses 20 to 24, we just see the story of how there came a day when there was a group of people who depended on Herod for food. They desired peace because they needed that food. But the King Herod, who we saw at the start of our passage, who cared about the praise of other people, who set himself up against the church, Here we see that same king put on his royal robes. He sits on his throne and he gives a speech. The people praise him as a god and then the angel of the Lord strikes him because of his pride, because he didn't give glory to God. Now the historian Josephus, who was not a believer, records this event and it lines up with the biblical account that we see. He records in more detail Herod's extravagant clothing on this day. He records his speech and the response of the people and records his death. 
And I bring this up because Josephus' account is evidence for the reliability of Scripture. It should strengthen our confidence in God's word. But the reason I'm not reading that quote from Josephus is because we have everything that we need in God's word. Josephus gives us a human perspective on Herod's death, but God, through his word, wants us to focus on this. The death of Herod was God's judgment on him. Verse 1 said that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged in the church. Herod was setting himself against the church, and that's similar to a few chapters before in Acts 9, where we have Saul persecute the church. Saul, Saul saw, that's hard to say, Saul saw Jesus Christ as just a normal criminal who was persecuted and killed on a cross, who was buried, and who stayed in the grave. He dedicated his life to stomping out this growing group of people who tried to declare that Jesus rose from the dead and was the Messiah of Israel. So he approves of Stephen's murder. And then Saul, in Acts 9, is on his way to persecute the church in Damascus. And it's on the way there that the risen Lord Jesus knocks him off his horse with a light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus the one who you're persecuting. So from that, we see that Christians are a part of the body of Christ. We know this is true. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. King Herod, through persecuting the church, set himself against Jesus. And we see how that ended for him. Herod joined the long line of people throughout Scripture who set themselves up against God. He joins the ranks with Pharaoh, Jezebel, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, and his grandfather, Herod the Great. In this passage, we see Herod was judged for persecuting the church. And as we saw in verse 23, Herod was also struck down because of his pride. We read that Herod didn't verbally claim to be God, but he received the praise from other people. Throughout the scriptures, we see that that praise only goes to God, and people are supposed to redirect people to God. Here, Herod isn't even saying he's God. He's just being quiet and not redirecting people. In Acts 10, Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet and worships him, and Peter quickly lifts him up and says, Stand up, I too am a man. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas heal a lame man, and the people of the city see it and are amazed, and they say the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And what does Paul and Barnabas do? Well, they rush into the crowd, tearing their clothes and saying, no, we are men like you. Worship God. Turn to the living God. And they preach the gospel. In Revelation, we see this angel give the apostle John a vision of the future, of the hope of God's people. And at the end of Revelation, and a few times throughout, John just falls down at the angel's feet to worship him. And the angel says, no, you must not do that. This angel says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets. Worship God. But that's not what Herod does here. He doesn't correct the crowd. And everything we know about Herod from the start of this chapter and from how he dresses himself and stands before the people, it all shows that this is exactly the praise that Herod wanted to hear. And aren't we in danger of this as well? You might not walk around your office at work declaring that you alone are worthy of the promotion that's coming. 
you might not walk around your floor as a nurse and tell everybody that you're the hardest working nurse on the floor, but do you hope that someone else says it? And how do you respond when you do get praise? From here, we see that the Lord sees our hearts. So with your words, but more importantly, with your heart, give glory to God for any praise and affirmation and encouragement that you receive. So we have Herod persecuting the church, which posed a threat to the spread of the gospel. He was proud and received the praise that only belongs to God. And earlier we saw an angel strike Peter to wake him up and rescue him. But here we have an angel strike Herod to kill him. So who's the real king on the throne? The risen Lord Jesus. From the book of Acts alone, it's declared that Jesus Christ is the author of life who was killed and buried, but God raised from the dead. We see that God the Father raised him and made him both Lord and Christ. And later on, Paul says, Peter says the same thing, saying that God exalted him as leader and savior. Jesus is reigning. He loved us and died for us and told us to make disciples of all nations, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. He told us that he would give us his Holy Spirit, and he has, and he told us that he would return and he will return. As we see in Revelations, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the King of the rulers of the earth. So be encouraged by this this morning. Jesus is still on the throne. And in this section, we see at the end that the gospel spreads. Herod may have opposed the church, but what do we read in verse 24? It says, The word of God increased and multiplied. As I mentioned at the beginning, throughout the book of Acts, we see the gospel spread regardless of persecution. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we see this happen even with persecution. The news of Jesus is not stopped by the religious leaders. It's not stopped by the internal sin of Ananias and Sapphira. It's not stopped by the mob that murdered Stephen in Acts 7 or by Saul, who was a terrorist trying to arrest every person he could. And here it's not stopped by a prideful king who sets himself against the church. The gospel is not stopped by persecution. In fact, it's oftentimes through persecution that the Lord brings the gospel to new areas. So throughout the early church and around the world today, persecution results in the spread of the gospel. So as we pray for revival in our country, do we realize that one of the ways God might answer that prayer is through persecution? The word of the Lord increased and multiplied. From this, we also see that the church is not built on any one man. It's built on Christ. James is killed. And Peter, even though the Lord delivers him, he then leaves Jerusalem and leaves the believers there. One commentator said this, he said, Luke's narrative of Peter's departure demonstrates that all leaders can be replaced. The itinerant missionary ministry does not depend on one person nor on a particular group of leaders. Rather, it depends always and only on the word of God. So yes, James was killed and Peter was arrested and left Jerusalem, but the church went on. So Pastor Eric and the other pastors of our church, they can be replaced. 
our religious liberties can be lost, but the gospel will continue to spread and the Lord will raise up leaders for his church. So we saw a king who opposed the Lord and was judged for it. We saw the Lord deliver Peter. But what's our application from all of this? How, how should this change the way that we live even this week? Well, for starters, if you're not a believer this morning, then your application from this passage is to believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior and the reigning Lord. You've sinned against the God who created you, and Jesus offers you forgiveness. That's your next step today. And if you are a Christian, then your response is to be encouraged by this. The Lord Jesus is on the throne. And be encouraged isn't an action step that you can do per se, but it should be your response from this. Be encouraged. The church will march on and nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Be encouraged by looking at the power of Jesus to deliver Peter and to judge Herod. The second application of this is this. Trust the Lord. This applies to persecution, to financial difficulties, to whatever you're going on is going on in your life right now. Trust the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Now, I want to be clear. Trusting the Lord doesn't mean that you won't suffer. Doesn't mean that everything will be easy. James was killed. But as we saw, the Lord knows what is best and he works everything out for our good in his glory, even as we are reminded in the worship this morning. He hears our prayers, and he is able to save, and no one can stop him. So we trust him. Saul tried to stop the spread of the gospel, yet Jesus appeared to him and changed his life, and instead of persecuting the church, changed his life so that he became one of the boldest proclaimers of the gospel and one of the writers of most of the New Testament. Here we have Herod who tried to stop the spread of the gospel and he was struck dead. So trust the Lord. And what does that look like? Well, trust the Lord by praying like the church and by sleeping like Peter. Trust the Lord by praying. That should be our first response in every situation. Pray to the God who is your father, who's in control, who you can come to because of what Christ has done. And then after you've prayed, sleep. You can trust God with these things. Sleep like Peter. The third application is be prepared for persecution. As we saw, the nations have always raged against the Lord and against his anointed. 1 Peter 4.12, uh, Peter writes to the Christians and says, Don't be surprised when you suffer for being a Christian, as if something strange were happening to you. He says that we follow a Savior who suffered. We proclaim that he is the only way to God and that he's the king of kings. So we should expect resistance. And CCF, as a church, will we be surprised if we suffer for being Christians? Peter says not to be. Will we be surprised? Our beliefs about Christ, about life in the womb, about marriage, about gender, about finances, about every area of life don't line up with the world but stand firm. The final application is just a repeat of the first. Be encouraged this morning. Christ is on the throne. And as I said, that doesn't mean we won't suffer, but it means our king is in control and he is coming back. May we be ready for him and may the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Please pray with me.